Oh, by the way, I loved the band name stuff. I just couldn't think of something, some witty, something witty to come back with. This, this is this <laughs> is what awesome. that like half quarter of a beer does. Bandemia just, is uh, a good one. <laughs> I've always I've always said that if I ever created a band, it would be called the Valsalva Maneuver. Oh, that's a good one. Oh my gosh, can we do that thing, Claire? If you're able to do that, are you recording? I'm recording. Where that goes at like the very beginning of this episode before we put on the music. <laughs> I don't want anyone stealing my band name. That's fair. That's fair. I'm never having a band. Don't worry. (laughs) Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm joined by my friends and co-hosts, Hannah Abrams and Tony Brew. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great. Amazing. So excited for this one. In this episode, we're going to talk about edema, more specifically the why and how of edema formation in nephrotic syndrome. Tony, take it away. Yeah, so uh, we are going to talk about edema, and I I kind of feel like I got to explain why I want to talk about edema more generally before we talk about nephrotic syndrome. And it's that, you know, I'm a general internist, and I feel like I have to have ownership over some symptoms, and and I really feel like edema is one of them, right? So most specialties have expertise in in some set of symptoms. So Avi, you're a pulmonologist. You have expertise in undifferentiated dyspnea. Hannah, you're going to be a hematologist in the future, so you're going to be an expert in things like bruising. And as an internist, I feel like there are fewer of them that we own. And and so I've really, I felt compelled to become somewhat of an expert in edema, or at least tried to become something of an expert in edema. And so that that's one of the drivers of wanting to talk about it uh, on this episode. All right. So why edema and nephrotic syndrome? Yeah. So the mechanism for nephrotic syndrome and edema, I feel like it at first blush is just intuitive and obvious, but it's far more interesting uh, as you kind of unpack the layers. And, you know, I've been a doctor since 2006, and I feel like as I've evolved from medical school to an intern to an attending, my understanding of the edema of nephrotic syndrome has evolved as I've kind of advanced in my years. Uh, And, you know, we'll try to make this discussion briefer than 15 years, but I feel like it's kind of an encapsulation of of my understanding of edema more generally. So I I thought it'd be kind of a cool one to talk about. So where do you want to begin? Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like it might be helpful to hear a little bit about how the two of you have either internally explained edema and nephrotic syndrome or explained it to your learners on rounds or otherwise. So I don't know if you do you guys have a, a working theorist in the mechanism? Maybe Aviana, you got one? I guess for me, it kind of, in my head, I think either there's too much hydrostatic pressure or there's too little oncotic pressure. And it's one of those two typically. What about you, Hannah? Yeah, I think something that I learned on my clerkship year is when in doubt, just sort of say something about the starling forces. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so similarly, I think that's broadly how I conceptualize it. Yeah, and, and the reality is both of you are right that uh, Avi, you said, you know, increased hydrostatic pressure and decreased onchoatic pressure. You're right. And all this, as Hannah said, will come back to the starling forces. But what's interesting is that I feel like if I ask this question on rounds to you know a med student, almost universally the first response I'll get is the the low albumin leads to a decreased plasma oncotic pressure, and that's what's causing the edema. And you and mean do you mean specifically nephrotic syndrome? 
Yeah, yeah. It will also in cirrhosis, that mm-hmm. will often be put forth as like the primary driver. And there's a lot of problems with this as uh, the primary mechanism. Oh, no, because if you asked me on rounds, that's definitely what I would say. Yeah, and and I said that same thing, I'm sure, all throughout medical school and through most of residency as well. All right, so so what are the problems? So the first is I think all three of us and a lot of the people listening have seen tons of patients with albumin levels in the nephrotic range, like the low twos, and they don't all manifest with anasarca and edema like patients who have nephrotic syndrome. So like that suggests that the albumin alone may not be enough. There's also studies in rats where they they feed them low-protein diets. And what they notice is that the interstitial oncotic pressure actually falls proportionate to the capillary oncotic pressure. And so the difference between the two, which is really what matters, isn't changing. And there's some evidence for the same in nephrotic syndrome in humans that you know as the plasma oncotic pressure decreases... In a similar fashion, the interstitial oncotic pressure changes, decreases, so the difference is unchanged. And then finally, there's this really fascinating condition called congenital analbuminemia, where some patients literally have an albumin of zero, and these patients um, don't always manifest with edema. And so in one series, uh, 50% of patients were asymptomatic, and only a third of these patients had edema. And so you know, one example in this in this cohort was a 21-year-old who presented with absolutely no symptoms and an albumin of zero. Now, you know, of course, they had other proteins and molecules that, that tried to increase the oncotic pressure in the plasma, but the sense that I got is that they couldn't bring it up to, this, to the level that the, you know, the albumin uh, would have uh, if it had been produced. So hold on, Tony. So are you suggesting then that low albumin and oncotic pressure then have no role in the pathology and pathogenesis of edema formation and nephrotic syndrome? Because like Hannah, like this is definitely the mechanism that I've been carrying around and kind of teaching others about. So, Yeah, I, I wouldn't go that far. And um, it almost certainly plays a role, particularly when the decrease is rapid or severe. And so the classic example of this is going to be minimal change disease in children where you see a rapid decrease, sometimes to an albumin of less than one. Uh, and I think in these patients, there's like no question that the decrease in the oncotic pressure in the plasma is contributing. But there's a sense that in adults in particular, that the role that the low albumin plays is probably hyped up a lot more because it's intuitive. It, it like we, we look at it and it makes sense. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I will, I will never forget being on my pediatrics rotation and seeing a, a child who was just had complete anasarca from minimal change disease that had developed kind of overnight over a couple of days. Okay, but now I mostly right, see right. adults. And those yeah. are the classic patients that will get the periorbital edema. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So now I mostly see adults and many of them, as you mentioned, have a slower drop in their albumin. So what is it for them that's causing the, the edema? Yeah, so the leading explanations uh, both rely on increased capillary hydrostatic pressure. And that, you know, Avi, you alluded to that in, in your initial hypothesis as to what might be going on. And more specifically, um, sodium retention uh, leading to an increased capillary hydrostatic pressure. Hmm. So just sort of like normal edema. That's right. But you said you said there were two explanations, the leading explanations. What, what are the sort of your two explanations? All right, so these aren't mine. These are like oh. smart nephrologists, but uh, I'll try to explain them as best I can. 
Um, and they, they go by the, the names, or you'll often hear the names underfill and overfill. So the underfill hypothesis and the overfill hypothesis. And I, I don't know, are those familiar to either of you guys? No, fill us in. All right. So so underfill, um, as the name suggests, um, is or what's happening in underfill is that even if the, a low albumin isn't itself enough to lead to edema, it might be enough to lead to some movement of fluid into the interstitial space, leading to some relative hypovolemia, and as a result of that, an increase in RAS tone and sodium retention, right? Again, it's not necessarily that the decreased albumin leading to you know, massive changes in, in um, where the fluid is in edema, but enough to cause RAS activation, sodium retention, and edema. And so this is actually an explanation I, I heard a lot in during residency. This is kind of like the second phase of my understanding. Okay. So you're saying that initially there is a relative hypovolemic state as a result of fluid shifts from blood into interstitium, subtle enough to cause that, but not overt enough to cause edema, but it sounds like that may be starting a process. So is there is there any evidence for this? Yeah, so what you said is exactly right, and, and there is some evidence. And I think the simplest evidence that's offered is that some patients with nephrotic syndrome have elevated levels of uh, renin and, and, and aldosterone, and that suggests an increased RAS tone. And if hypovolemia is a main driver of RAS activation, the hypothesis goes, well, you know, these patients have increased RAS tone. It could be that it's a form of hypovolemia that's causing it. But what's interesting is not all patients actually meet this profile. And in many patients, in fact, the renin and aldo levels aren't high at all um, in nephrotic syndrome, suggesting that there's something else going on. And I guess the other question that I had, Tony, and you know, this explanation, are there other reasons that a patient with nephrotic syndrome and like sick kidneys could have high renin levels. I just, I wonder if there's maybe something else going on that we don't understand. Yeah. And I think that's a really great question. You know, when I would read this, some of this literature, they would go from RAS is activated to they must have had some form of volume depletion causing the RAS activation. But you're right. Maybe there's something else that's driving it other than a form of uh, hypovolemia. So I think it's, an, it's a good question to ask. Okay. So low albumin underfill blank. Can you fill in the third space for us? Right. So the third explanation. Yeah. So if there's an underfill, then there's also going to be an overfill. And the overfill hypothesis basically states that the kidneys are sodium avid, not because they're uh, sensing decreased effective circulating volume, but because they're just turned on constitutively. They're turned on independent of RAS. And again, if there's some patients who don't have elevated RAS tone, but they're still sodium avid, then that sodium avidity must be independent of RAS. And why would the kidney retain sodium if they aren't directed to by RAS? I kind of that's kind of what I think about when I when I think sodium avid states, the renin angiotensin aldosterone system is on. Yeah, and, and I find this explanation so cool. So I think we all know that in nephrotic syndrome, there's an increase in glomerular filtration of proteins. Right. And, and albumin is the classic one, right? We see it in the urine and we see less of it in the blood. And like, there we go. They have nephrotic syndrome. But there are other proteins that are filtered in nephrotic syndrome 
that you know lead to a lot of the manifestations of of the syndrome itself. Right. Yeah. So I think I remember in in medical school learning about sort of this is why people are hypercoagulable and can have immunodeficiencies because they're losing IgA or IgG and prothrombin. That's right. Right. Yeah. That's right. So you you end up peeing out. Sorry, antithrombin. Antithrombin three. Yeah, you pee out basically coagulation factors. You, you pee out immunoglobulins. You become immunodeficient. You become um, hypercoagulable. But what's interesting about the edema component is, is that you're also filtering a set of proteins called serine proteases. And one of the key serine proteases that's gotten a lot of attention is plasmin. And it has a precursor, plasminogen, that is definitely found in the urine of patients with nephrotic syndrome. So, And I think the assumption here is that it isn't found in the urine of like patients who don't have nephrotic syndrome. So there's something about maybe this increased filtration of plasminogen being turned into plasmin in the urine itself that that is maybe having a role in the edema of nephrotic syndrome. Okay, so plasmin is potentially in the urine, but what does it do? What is what does it protease? Yeah, so this is the cool thing. So plasmin can activate the ENAC channel um, that's in the distal nephron via proteolytic cleavage of the gamma chain. And so you know, the way I think about this and the way some of the pictures will describe it or will try to demonstrate it is you know, the, the plasmin is sort of coming through and there's like this hood sitting on ENAC and it comes through and it cleaves that hood off and now the ENAC channel is like open and like ready to do its thing. And in many ways, its thing is reabsorb sodium, right? It's a sodium channel. Mm. And so this, the idea here is that the channel is turned on independent of RAS and just goes crazy absorbing sodium. And as a result of that, you get edema. So, and that's crazy. <laughs> it is a little crazy. <laughs> it's like a luminal protease. Yeah. It, it just, it's, it's like just messing with the channels. Yeah, but pretty much. But Because it, it, it's getting filtered into the urine. Yeah. and. I guess related to that, is this a like a just non-specific like there's a potent protease that's just passing through, and it's and it's causing this cleavage, or is there some kind of structural homology between ENAC and like fibrin? Like, yeah, what a good question. I don't know. Like, does like does plasmin do this normally, and it's just doing it in a like a a uh, like hyperactive way in nephrotic syndrome? I actually I have no idea, um, uh, and. You know, is this just some random fluke that uh, that a serine protease happens to be flying by and is like, you know what? I'm gonna chop that door off of Nenac and turn you on. I I I I have no idea, but there's a sense that it's happening, and I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's 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 like it's like you know, turning on the turning on the on the faucet on the way out the door. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like pretty just, much. Just going to turn this on, head on out. Yeah, end up in the urine. So maybe we have some questions about exactly why this happens, uh, but what evidence is there to suggest that this is the mechanism for the edema and nephrotic syndrome? Yeah, so there's animal models um, of nephrotic syndrome where what they did is they treated mice uh, with a serine protease inhibitor, aproteinin. And this normalized the urinary uh, serine protease activity and actually prevented sodium retention. So again, in this study, they gave a, a molecule that should 
inhibit the effect of a serine protease. And when they gave that, they found a prevention of the sodium retention. And so that's, you know, somewhat indirect evidence, but evidence potentially of an effect on a ser- of a serine protease on ENAC. But there are other proteases, right? So it doesn't prove the plasmin is the problem, does it? That, yeah, that's right. And, and when I first read about this um, a few years ago, I think the plasmin was really felt to be the, the key protease that was doing this like cleavage at, at ENAC. But I think in subsequent an example, yeah, yeah. But I think in subsequent years, there are other proteases like I don't know how to pronounce this one, but um, uh, cathepsin B or cathepsin B. They've also been reported to increase ENAC activity in experimental models of nephrotic syndrome. So it seems like some serine protease, whether it's plasmin or something else, um, is the uh, sort of the leading hypothesis for why overfill happens. And so I guess you know one question that that. Um, that might follow from this that I'll pose to you guys is, you know, if, if the a leading explanation for overfill is ENAC activation, how might um, we treat the edema of nephrotic syndrome? I noted that you want me to say amylaride, but all I can think after we did this episode on it a while back is, is trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. <laughs> exactly. Which has its ENAC-like effect on the or it's, it's a Miller-Ride-like effect on the ENAC channels. <laughs> yeah, and on rounds, uh, Hannah's like, a problem number one, edema. I would like to give uh, trimethoprim sulfa uh, as my diuretic <laughs> of choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but 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 you're right. A Miller-Ride is, is what I was fishing for. Um, and there actually are animal studies showing that a Miller-Ride reduces the sodium retention in nephrotic syndrome. And there are case reports of humans who have diuretic-resistant edema in nephrotic syndrome who responded to amylaride. Now, I will say that I don't think there is enough case reports and clinical data suggesting that we should be using amylaride in nephrotic syndrome. And, and most of these patients are, are quite responsive to our usual loop diuretics. But it is an interesting observation. And, and who knows, you know, at some point in the next few years, we may see a, a, a clinical trial of amylaride versus furosemide for the edema nephrotic syndrome that pans out. But I wouldn't recommend anyone use it as the first-line therapy for nephrotic syndrome, even though mechanistically it's it, it, it kind of seems like it might work. Well, Tony, you've covered a lot of kind of cool and honestly often surprising physiology. And so what are your take-home points? Yeah. So I, you know, I think the first one is that although patients with nephrotic syndrome have low albumin levels, um, the low plasma oncotic pressure isn't the main driver of edema. It probably is important in rapid onset, minimal change disease, particularly in children. But for a lot of the adults that I see, I think it's of lesser importance. Now, the low plasma albumin may lead to a degree of volume depletion, and that may result in RAS-mediated sodium retention. And this second potential mechanism is called the underfill hypothesis. And the third take-home point is really the third hypothesis for edema, and that's the overfill hypothesis. And what it states is that there's some filtered serum protease, whether it's plasminogen converted to plasmin or something else, and these activate ENAC and lead to a RAS-independent sodium retention and edema. And, you know, I'd say that some point down the line, we may see amylaride as a increasing therapy, but it's not quite ready for prime time as the standard of care for uh, edema and nephrotic syndrome. I say, as usual, this issue is far more complicated than I could have possibly imagined. <laughs> I mean, the answer is always multifactorial, right? <laughs> Yeah, answer D on the test. Exactly. Absolutely. All right. 
Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you as always for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Bye.